together. We're up to chapter four. Uh, Exodus is a story about the people of uh, Israel, the Hebrews, uh, when they were um, being worked as slaves, basically, in, in Egypt, and how God uses Moses to lead the people uh, out of Egypt and towards their promised land. And it's a story that's obviously 3,000 years old, but is relevant to us today as it tells a story of how God leads us out of the sin of all the issues, the trauma, the trouble in our lives, how God leads us out to draw us into relationship with him. And that's why we're looking at the story of Moses together but this is, is actually the, we're going to stop this Sunday and then after this week we're going to have a break for about five or six weeks and then we'll pick up Exodus again in September. We'll still be meeting as a church but we're going to uh, be looking at uh, the Lord's Prayer from Matthew instead over, the, over the, the, kind of the weeks through the summer. And we've got a couple of guest preachers as well the next few weeks. Uh, two really good friends of mine. Uh, first of all, a guy called Tim Jones who's, who's shorter than me, he's about here. And um, he's a nice guy, even though he's short, don't worry about it. Uh, he's preached here before, some of you might remember him, he's an excellent preacher. And then another friend of mine called Steve Wolford, who he's taller than me, but don't be scared of that either, who again, Steve Wolford is, is uh, a phenomenal man who you should, well, he's, he's only here for one day. So I'd advise you all just to get as much out of him as you can, because he's one of those people that has just walked faithfully with God through decades and decades and has a wealth of wisdom uh, and experience. So please milk him for all he's worth. Um, but today, as I said, we are going to carry on in Exodus. And, uh, um, you know, Exodus has been made into lots of uh, movies and stories about it and Disney cartoons. But there's one particular, there's a few bits of the story that they tend to miss out. There's one bit in particular that doesn't get picked up in all the movies and the children's Bibles. It's the bit they kind of missed out, uh, which is a bit of a shame because it's actually quite a dramatic um, twist in the plot. You know, if this was a movie, it'd be one of those moments where you think, whoa, where did that come from? Uh, and it makes you kind of sit back and, and think. Um, and it's, it's quite a dramatic turn of events. So we're going to read this together uh, and then I'll, I'll see if we can spot the the twist in the plot as we go along. Okay, this is from verse 18 to verse 31. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law. And so Moses has just been at the burning bush. He's had this encounter with God where God has commissioned him. And then he's been staying with, he's been living for decades with his father-in-law in another country. And God's told him to come back to Egypt to rescue the Hebrews. So Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. If you haven't noticed, that's the twist in the plot, right? Where God appears to try and kill Moses, which we're going to explain a little bit later. Then Zipporah took a, Zipporah is Moses' wife. She took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. Weird, but don't worry, it will make sense in a bit, hopefully. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they'd heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Right, I'm going to pray and then we'll move on. God, we thank you so much for your grace, Father. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, God, that uh, you're with us. That's a wonderful promise of Scripture, the Bible, that we don't just come to a distant God far, far away. You're not just a cartoon God. You're a real God. And you've come down to be with us, to be with your people. And uh, we want to know you, God. Even through passages of the Bible like that that don't necessarily make sense to us, we believe that your word has power, that it speaks to us. And we want it to affect and change our lives today. And we want to leave this room knowing you better, knowing you coming to speak to us, to guide us, to lead us. Thank you so much for your grace towards us, Jesus. Amen. This morning, what I want to talk about is um, commitment. I'm going to talk about commitment. We talk about commitment erosion, stability and instability, and then lasting commitment. You see, we live in a world of uh, endless choices. Everywhere that we go, there's another choice, another opportunity, every direction. And you go into the shops to go shopping, um, or you can, if you're dating, you can go and you can use an app and you can just pick choices, choices all the time. And what that, that, that does is that it begins to erode and dilute and kind of dampen any sense of commitment in our lives. Having choices isn't necessarily a bad thing, but we can get so paralyzed by the choice, we can get so lost in it, that we begin to treat life, all of life, as just, uh, uh, just options. We can go onto Facebook and think, well, I don't like their opinions or I don't like that they share so many pictures of cats and we just can unfollow them. We can just pick and choose who we want to be friends with. We can just get rid of some people. We just dis disregard some people. And you might think, well, that's just social media. That's just what we do. But those things, they begin to 
affect us. They begin to affect our souls. They begin to affect how we act and how we treat life. And it begins to kind of ruin and erode any sense of commitment in our life. All these technology tools that are actually supposed to make the world smaller have actually pushed people further and further apart. We're getting more and more, as we get more and more connected, we get more and more disconnected with each other. And we, get to, we lose any sense of commitment. And we live in an age that is, we're kind of relationally immature. All of us, in a way. Because to build healthy relationships takes commitment. It takes loving people and spending time with people even when necessarily you don't like everything about them. When you're not sure about certain things. To make a relationship work takes commitment. And yet, we, many of us, most of us in some ways, don't really know how to do that anymore. And the Bible talks about a sense of stability and protection that comes out of a covenant relationship, which is what we're going to talk about today. But that whole idea has been lost in our society. We don't treat relationships with any sort of reverence anymore, with any sort of importance. They're just, relationships are just things that we use to make us happy. And if, if it's not making us happy anymore, then we just disregard it and move on to the next thing. I was uh, listening to a, a song the other day by uh, an artist called uh, Susan Sonfer, I think is her name. I think that's how you pronounce it. She's Norwegian. Uh, she wrote an amazing song. And uh, this was the, the opening uh, uh, chorus from this song. She says, don't trust the ones who love you because if you love them back, they'll always disappoint you. It's just a matter of fact. And for many people, that's, that's just how people feel about relationships. It's not even so much that because of technology or whatever that relationships have been eroded, but you've just been hurt. So you think, well, what's the point? If, if every relationship ultimately in the end is just gonna let me down, it's just gonna disappoint me, then why bother? Why bother? I will just use relationships to keep me happy. I will just pick and choose who I wanna be with. I'll just, as soon as the relationship isn't fulfilling me anymore, I'll just disregard it and move on. Because if they're just gonna disappoint you, then, then why do anything else? Just carry on that way. And do you know that's how many people treat relationships? And maybe that's even for you. Maybe that's whether consciously, deliberately or not, maybe that's, that's what you think about relationships. You just thought, well, I'm not gonna sort of put myself out there anymore in case I get hurt, in case I get disappointed again. And the thing is, it, she's not wrong. Relationships do disappoint us sometimes. We, we could pretend that, that you just sort of get married and everything is a wonderful funnel of joy. But marriages have hard seasons. All relationships have times where if you're gonna make it work, then you, you have to push through. You have to together say, we're gonna make this work. We've made promises to one another. So we're gonna fight for it. And yet 
in our society, we've lost the ability to do that. And that can infect us as well in so many different ways. And, and for many of us, you might think the, the reality is that maybe nobody really, really knows you. Maybe that's a question you want to ask yourself. Who, who really knows me? Because that's a difficult, difficult thing to consider. You know, who knows your weaknesses, your struggles? Who, who, who do you share your greatest joys and wonders with, but who do you walk through the tough times with? It doesn't, and I'm not just saying everybody needs to find a husband or wife and everything's fine. I would suggest you need to do that with more than just one person. <laughs> that that's what the church is for. That's what God's community is for, is that we, we can walk through life together, that we can process those moments together, that we can encourage one another and support one another in the hardest of times. You see, this kind of erosion of relationships and trust and commitment, what it does, it just creates instability. It just means nothing solid anymore. <laughs> nothing feels permanent anymore. Everything feels a bit shaky. Maybe you can relate to that. Your life just feels a bit wobbly because no, God des has designed relationships to give us stability. And yet, without any sort of real relationships, life can just feel uncomfortable and unstable. But within all this instability, at the same time, the wonderful thing is that we, there is something that's stable, and we believe that's God, that's Jesus. In, in um, Matthew 7, I think it is, God uses an illustration where he says, trusting in Jesus is like building your house on a rock, <laughs> which is very true for Amsterdam because most of our city is built on sand. <laughs> so he, he, in the passage, it kind of uh, compares that to building your house on sand instead. And you think, well, for everyone in our city, we've kind of got that problem. You have to get those huge foundation pile things and drive them into the ground to somewhere, hopefully, find rock at the bottom because everyone knows for a house to stay stable it needs to be built on sand and God says that trusting in him is like building your house building your life on a rock that really he's the only stable presence that you can really build your life upon that you can uh, 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 find that security that trust in Let's look at how this passage can help us understand this. First of all, we find this scene where uh, God tells Moses to go back to Egypt, which he's already done before the burning bush. And he says, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go, which is fascinating. Pharaoh is the big kind of number one enemy in this story. He's the big baddie. He's the one that's trying to stop everything. But in this passage, it's not saying that Pharaoh's trying to stop everything. It's saying that actually, that it will be God that hardens Pharaoh's heart to stop Pharaoh letting the people go, which that's odd, right? That's peculiar. What's going on there? And there are other bits in the story where it says that Pharaoh himself hardens his own heart 
But here we find that, that God's saying he's going to harden, harden his, his heart. So we, we get this moment where it appears that, that God is somehow hardening Pharaoh's heart. The, the thing is, what that's about is that God's showing his wonderful sovereignty. We've shown that God's, he's in charge. Of all the rulers and powers, the kings and the emperors over all of the world, God says, I'm in charge. I can dictate what happens, what doesn't happen. And also, the, the, the fascinating thing is, is that in, in the, the Egyptian story and their religion, they believe that when the pharaoh dies, that what would happen is they would weigh his heart against a feather. And if his heart was truly light, it would suggest that he was somehow godlike. He had this wonderful purity about him. <laughs> so God is saying to him, you're not God. He's saying your heart won't be like a feather. It'll be hard like a rock. And God's saying above all these powers, above all the instability of our world, God's sovereign. He's in charge. And not only is he sovereign and in charge, but he brings this identity as well. In the next verses, he goes on to, to say, um, you should say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. It's a very dramatic language again. But you see what happens here, we see this beautiful instance where God talks about Israel, his people, not just about uh, a bunch of people that get to follow him, not as just a, his kind of minions that do his work, but he talks about this nation as his son, which is this beautiful theme that runs all the way through scripture, that that's how God talks about us as his children, as his firstborn sons and daughters, part of his family. The Bible teaches that when we become a Christian, when we choose to follow Jesus or when he comes and calls us to follow him, that what happens is, is we, we become co-heirs with Christ. We're adopted into the family of God. We become his children, which again gives a wonderful sense of stability when you think all these relationships around me are failing, but the relationship that really counts, we get to have. Because the Hebrews would have been feeling this pain. They've been oppressed for decades, enduring so much suffering and pain. And God says the most important thing is, is you're my children. And I care for you. And I love you no matter what. But then, as well as this uh, sovereignty and sonship, we also get this covenant, which I'm going to explain what that means, which we get to the slightly confusing verses where uh, God seems to decide to put Moses to death. Let me try to explain what that's about. Now, the important thing is when you come across difficult parts of the Bible, and I'm sure you will if you read the Bible in your own time, you know, when you, sometimes you'll, get, you'll come across verses and you'll think, I just don't know what that's about. First of all, that's okay. We all do that. 
It's not that you're just, you're somehow a kind of lower level of Christian because you find bits of the Bible confusing. We all find bits of the Bible confusing. The, the first thing to do is to not just read one verse, but read it in the context of everything that's around it. Read the whole chapter. Find out what the author's trying to say. And then the best way to interpret the Bible is to use other bits of the Bible to make sense of it. And you find once you start reading other bits of the Bible, then that will bring that section that may be a bit tricky into light. And you can use study Bibles to help you to do that, or you can ask maybe someone who's a more mature Christian help you do that. Or you can go on Google and just put in the verse and you'll get all sorts of answers. Probably best not to do that. But you see, one of the main, to help us to understand this verse, if we read the rest of the book of Exodus, you see, one of the main themes that goes all the way through the book is this theme of covenant. Right from the very start of the book, in the original Hebrew, the book would have began with the word and, the very first word of the whole book. And what that's doing is it's linking uh, the book of Exodus to the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis has all these covenant promises all the way through the book where God comes to Abraham and God comes to Isaac, God comes to Jacob and he makes these promises with them, these agreements with them. And this theme throws all the way through Exodus as well. And it, often in the book, it may appear as though God seems to have forgotten his covenant. At least the Hebrews might have felt like that. But he hasn't. He hasn't at all. You see, a covenant is like it's, it's like a firm promise. It's, it's kind of a bit more than a promise. It's a bit more than a commitment. It's a bit more than a contract. Most of you have signed a contract, whether it's for a new uh, job or a new apartment or you know, a new phone, you sign a document. We've all signed different contracts. And in a way, this is a little bit like that. There's something official and permanent about it, but it's much more, it's much more loving than any sort of uh, contract that we might seem, we might find. But it's also much more binding and permanent than any sort of kind of relational agreement that we might find. It's, it's, the best way to describe it is like an oath that God and his people have declared an oath. It's like a firm promise. It's like a commitment that we will do this. And often what people do is they, they kind of will take all the different covenants through the Old Testament and kind of club them together as the old covenant and think that that's somehow a bad thing. But the thing is right from the very start, all these covenants, these agreements that God comes to make with his people, they're full of grace. I'm going to explain that as we go a little bit long, as we go on. I guess probably the best way to understand a covenant, if this might help you, is to talk about a marriage. In a marriage, when you, when you get married on your wedding day, you stand and you face each other and you make certain vows, promises. You make a commitment to one another. You exchange rings. And that's, that's what a covenant is. You're entering into a covenant relationship. And that's what God has done with his people. He's brought us into this covenant relationship where God's made promises to us, promises to keep us, to care us, to love us. And we as his people have made promises back that we're going to follow him. And that's what the Hebrews had done. And the thing is that sadly, even, even in the world that we, we live in, People don't even really understand marriage anymore. I read an article just this week 
about a lady who, she described herself as, let me just check the word, because I've not heard of it before, as a polyamorist. Don't know if you know what that is. Polyamorist is someone who doesn't believe in monogamy, which is the commitment to one individual, like a marriage. Um, and it means you can have um, endless amounts of open relationships all at the same time with whoever you want. And that was, her, that was how she lived her life. Um, and, and her objection to monogamy, to marriage, was that as a female, she found it disempowering, that it took all her power away. And so she didn't want to give over all her power. She wanted to have all these uh, different relationships because by getting to choose who she slept with whenever she want, who she hung out with whenever she want, she, she then got to keep control. She kept all the power. And the thing is, the thing is she's, she's 100% wrong and she's 100% right all at the same time. You see? You see, it's... It, it's by deciding to sort of live uh, in that bizarre, crazy way is sadly a route to destruction. That's not gonna do her any good. She'll never find peace. She'll never feel settled. She might feel, find a sense of power, but sooner or later, as she ages, as life goes on, she won't find fulfillment from all those relationships. But she's right that marriage that making that covenant commitment to one another, it is disempowering. It takes away your power, not just for the woman, but for the husband as well. For both of you, it takes away your power because you make a commitment to one another. You say what's yours is mine and what's mine is yours. And what often we actually prefer to say is what, what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine as well. <laughs> That's how we tend to sometimes work things out. But you make a commitment to each other you say, my body, everything of me is now yours. You're, any power that you had, you're laying it down in front of each other and saying, I, I, I give away all my power instead to have this relationship. That's what a covenant relationship is. That's what it is to know Jesus, to follow him. We could, we could preach this wonderful message of uh, come and follow Jesus and suddenly you'll get this amazing, powerful, beautiful life and you can be in control and have whatever you want. But the reality is following Jesus is saying, I give it all away, all of it. I lay it all down. And that might scare you, and I kind of hope it does. It should scare you, but that's the sort of relationship that God has called us to. Now, to help us to come back to this passage, um, actually one more thing on this is that not only is this about, uh, uh, you know, kind of, uh, marriage relationships or relationship with God, that it, it should affect how we relate together as a community, as a people. That becoming part of the church family, you're, you're actually entering into like a, a kind of like a covenant relationship with one another. You're saying, do you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna love you, I'm gonna care for you, I'm gonna make life work with you. And that's the beautiful thing about a church is where in, in many other portions of life you get to pick and choose your friends. In a church, anyone can come through the doors. Anyone can come and join us. And we don't say, oh, well, actually, sorry, the church isn't for you. It's just for all those other people. No, we, we welcome everybody in. We genuinely do. Sometimes that's going to be hard for us, but we welcome everybody in. 
And that means we don't just then welcome them in but close them off in a certain part. We say, no, you're part of the family now. So we'll treat you as we would a brother or a sister. There's a quote that I find helpful to understand this, if I can find it, which I may not be able to find it. Here we go. A guy called Ronald, whatever, however you say that. He said, church involvement when understood properly, does not leave us the option to walk away whenever something happens that we do not like. Because that's exactly how we're, we're taught by our society to, to treat things. If it doesn't work, I'll just walk away. But the thing is, it's a, it's a covenant commitment. It's like a marriage, and it binds us together for better or for worse. Now, you might be thinking, hold on a second, I've just come through the doors this morning. This is my first time here. You know, this is a bit of a hard sell <laughs> to suddenly walk in and say, right, now you're ours. Get rid of all your life. <laughs> we're not saying that, all right? We're, we're saying the church is supposed to be like a family. And if you're here for the first time, then you're so welcome to be with us. Feel very free to kind of look in on our family and have a look around and get to know us a little bit. And hopefully over time, you'll uh, get to know us more and more and be become and begin to feel a lot more like part of the family. Right, let's get back to this passage. Because a helpful way, because you've probably still got lots of questions about what's going on here. A helpful way is to turn to one of those covenants in Genesis 17. Let me read this. So this is a promise that God's made to Abraham. He says, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant with which you shall keep between me and, uh, and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You should be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it should be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So what God's doing, he's made this, you can read about it in Genesis 12, Genesis 15. God comes to Abraham and he makes this covenant agreement. They, he draws Abraham and the people of God into this kind of marriage-like covenant relationship with God. And he says, as a sign of it, you need to circumcise, that means remove the foreskin of, of your sons. Now, the problem here, if we come back to the story of Moses, is that he hasn't done that. <laughs> Moses hasn't done that. He's, he's not circumcised his son. And that's why God comes and attempts to kill him. He says, you've not, you've not kept the covenant. Because see, the circumcision, again, to use a marriage illustration, it's a bit like when you exchange rings. Um, if, if I take my ring off, if I take it off, I'm still married, all right? Sometimes my kids say that. They'll take it off and they'll put it on each other's fingers and say, oh, I'm married to mummy now. Like, no, you're not. <laughs> I definitely am still. Uh, if, if I drop this down a drain, obviously I'd go and buy a new one, but we would still be married in the meantime. All right? the, the ring doesn't mean you're married, but it's a sign, isn't it? It's a sign so that everybody can know that we're married. Everybody can know that we've made promises, agreements with one another. And for the Hebrews to, to become circumcised was a sign and Moses has decided to disregard it. He's just, ah, I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to do it. And God's, God's saying, well, you're not, you're not treating this covenant seriously. You're not following the commands I've given you. If you can't even do this, how can I trust you with this great job that I've given you to do, to lead the people out of Egypt, if you can't even do the simple thing of keeping this sign that I've asked you to do? Now, if you're a man, you're thinking, this is not simple. 
But that's why they do it when they're young. It's a lot simpler then. See, Moses has failed to keep his commitment, so his wife has to step in. Actually, the, the Bible isn't clear. It could, be, it could be that they're actually talking about Moses' son that God threatens to kill. The Bible's not clear. The language is a bit, is a bit difficult to understand. But it's probably Moses because it seems as though he's sick, he's incapacitated. His wife, Zipporah, she has to come and circumcise their son. She has to step in in this moment. And you might still think, why does God demand this? Why does God say that he has to die? This is just harsh. This is just a cruel God being harsh. But the thing is, to, what Moses says to, what God says to Abraham is that if you don't circumcise your son, then you'll, you'll be cut off from the community. And to be cut off from relationship with God is to be effectively dead anyway, in an eternal sense. <laughs> if you think about it, not just for the next few years, but for eternity, I think to be cut off from God is death. So God's saying, I'm just going to do to you what's going to happen anyway. He's just, you'll just be cut off, you'll be gone. See, God's holiness is not something to be messed around with. And Moses is having to learn this lesson the hard way. See, because we've been seduced by this world. To, it's difficult for, for us to understand this passage because we've been taught by the world not to think like this, that we don't treat relationships with a sense of, uh, of reverence, of importance, because we treat them in such a flimsy way that things like this can seem bizarre to the kind of Western mind. Now let's just move on. See, if any other religion would probably understand what I'm talking about a little bit better. Any other belief system would probably be able to make sense of this a bit more. Yeah, of course, if you disregard God's laws, then there's a punishment to take. If you don't follow, if you don't do the pilgrimage, if you don't follow the certain things, then you're in trouble. Then there's an issue. I was, uh, uh, I was in England this week for a couple of days and I visited a castle with some friends of mine called Arundel Castle, which is like a beautiful, kind of stereotypical English castle. It's like a thousand years old. And it's owned by a family who've lived in the castle through generations and generations. And uh, in, in a certain part of the castle, they have a chapel. Uh, and you walk in that chapel and you walk around the room. And on the wall, there's banners. And uh, on, all the family are buried there on the gravestones, on the plinths. All across this building, there's this phrase uh, in Latin which says, Sola virtuous invicta, which I don't know how your Latin is, so I had to look it up. Because I saw it everywhere. I thought, what does that mean? And it means that virtue alone is invincible. Virtue alone is invincible. By virtue, it means moral excellence. That's what virtue is. To live a perfect life, it's invincible. And this is the message that we're shouting down from all across this room. The thing that will make you invincible is to live the perfect life. And I wanted to stand up and say, that's not true. It's not true. It's just a lie shouting out across this building because you can't live a perfect life. No one can live a perfectly virtuous life. <laughs> you might think, oh, well, I'll, I'll give it a shot. You know, just look back at this week, this morning, this month. You can't. 
but yet it's holding this family. I just was standing there thinking, wow, through all their generations, this family have had this heavy pressure bearing down on them. Live perfectly, live perfectly, live perfectly. And for many of us, that's what we think it means to follow Jesus. That we need to, we need to somehow earn, we need to somehow win. If, we just, if I can be more virtuous, if I can be more moral, if I can just do the right things, then surely I'll be accepted by God. Because that's what so many different belief systems believe. That's what our heart all the time is drawing us to believe. And, and you might think, well, surely that's even what this covenant is saying, that we need to keep this covenant. And if I break this covenant, then I've broken relationship with God. But the thing is, all the way through the Bible story, God comes again and again through the Old Testament, and he makes this covenant with the people. He comes to Moses later on and brings the Mosaic law, all these legal requirements. And what happens is, time and time again, the people of God, they break them all. <laughs> again and again and again. They do the most hideous, horrible things. You, know, you might be shocked by what Moses did, but that's nothing compared to some of the stories. Again and again, they break God's commandments. They let him down, because they're exactly the same as us. But yet, every time God comes to them again and again and again, God doesn't give up on them. He keeps coming after them. He keeps chasing after them, like he keeps chasing after you, chasing after all of us. You see, because in this story we find that he's, he's a committed savior. Let me just find some verses to help us. With Jesus we find this lasting commitment. We see straight away how he traveled. Uh, we see how in Exodus it says that uh, God instructs Moses to go back to the Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. And yet it says in Matthew 2, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, who's Jesus' dad, in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the, the child's life are dead. It's like a mirror image of what you read in Exodus. See, Jesus goes on this lasting, he has this lasting commitment. He goes on this journey to 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 lead his people out in the same way that Moses does. He was, Jesus was also the firstborn who died for us. Again, we found in Exodus 4.22 where it talks about Israel being the firstborn. And then when, he, when Moses has to go to Pharaoh and say, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son, which is what happens. But yet we find, we can read in Revelation that Jesus Christ was the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus was the firstborn who had to die. That was his last, that proves, that shows his undying, well, his dying commitment to you to set you free, to love you. It goes on and, and where it talks about circumcision, we see that Jesus undertook this for us as we read the story of Moses and Zipporah and how Zipporah has to come and circumcise Moses' son and touch his feet with it. Surely you're the bridegroom of blood. And we can read in Colossians where Paul writes, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We don't need to be circumcised anymore. Praise the Lord. 
because Christ was circumcised for us by his death. We don't need this, this little sign anymore because it's been done for all time. The covenant has been fulfilled for all time by Jesus Christ. We see even that in his lasting commitment that he saw their affliction and will set them free. The, the chapter four finishes, it says, and the people believed, this is when Moses and Aaron have come to share with them what they're gonna do. The people believed when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and worshiped. In Jude, it says that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, it was Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. In the same way that Jesus led all the people out, he leads us out. So Jesus brings this new covenant. Whereas the old covenant, we had to keep a law we had to keep all these practices. We had to keep all doing all these things. Jesus fulfilled all of that. He came to fulfill the law, to set us free. And it means that we can enter into this beautiful uh, uh, covenant relationship now with God. And even when we let him down again and again and again, he welcomes us back each time. And we don't have to do any ritual to come back. We don't have to go and sacrifice something. We don't have to somehow make amends by living really well. We just come back to God. And he loves us and he forgives us again and again and again. And again and again and again. We can mess up, we can blow it, we can do horrendous things. Maybe some of you are carrying in your heart things that you've done or said or thought and you think, oh, that's, that's a horror. I can't believe I've done that. It's forgiven. It's forgiven, all of it. Let me pray. If, you, uh, if you're comfortable, why don't you just stand to your feet? God, we... we we know that all of us, we, in lots of different ways, we lack commitment, <laughs> whether to you, to our friends, to our family, in so many different ways. We'd love to be committed and we try, but we fail. But we thank you in, in you, we find this lasting, eternal commitment. God, and we, we wanna put our trust in you and we want to ask for your help, Holy Spirit, to come and help us to follow you by your grace. And we want to build relationships with one another that are genuine, that are honest. We don't want to hide away, scared that we'll be disappointed, scared that we'll be hurt. And we thank you that, that ultimately, God, for maybe there are people here that have been uh, horribly, brutally disappointed by our relationships. We know that each of us can come to you and you don't let us down. You don't forsake us. You don't leave us in our pain and our mess. The promises you've made to us, you will follow through on. You have followed through on. You've rescued us. You've come to set us free. 
And we want to follow you with all of our hearts, Jesus. Not because we have to, but just because we want to now by your grace. Why don't you take a moment just quietly before God in your heart and just say, I want to follow you. Maybe you've never prayed that prayer before. Maybe you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus. So there's an opportunity this morning to say, God, I want to follow you. I want to sacrifice everything. I want to lose my power because following you is the best thing. It's better than anything else that life can offer. It really is. We want to lay it all down and say we want to follow you, Jesus. We thank you because of your grace. We can all do that, no matter who we are, what we've done. 